church, man. It is, yeah, absolutely. It is great to have you guys celebrating our anniversary with us this this uh, this morning. Seventeen years of ministry throughout the throughout Evans and the CSRA, and we are so grateful. Uh, for those of you that are joining us live in person, those of you that are joining us online, if you're online, you still have time to join us for lunch, so get off your couch and come join us. It's going to be a great time of fellowship and a great time to be with one another. And just like our church has an origin story, and Kaylee talked about it in the video, how our church began in a small office and expanded and grew to the point where we bought our first property, this one right here that we're on right now, just like our church has an or origin story, every culture has its own origin story. Every culture has a story of how we got here, how we all arrived, where we came from. And when children ask their parents, where did we come from? That is a profound question. And it's a question that we shouldn't dismiss or brush off. It is an incredibly profound question. Because where we came from, our origin and our understanding of that shapes the way we see the world. The origin of where we came from, of who we are, how we got here, shapes the way we think, it shapes how we live, and it gives us a lens through which we see everything else in life. Thankfully, God has not left us in the dark. Thankfully, God has given us an origin story. And in the first book, the first story of the Bible, God explains where we came from. God gives us the origin of how we got here. He tells us what the true origin story is. So this morning we're going to be in Genesis 1. So you can go ahead and turn there, chapters 1 and 2. Because in the beginning God created. That phrase, that statement, in the beginning God created. That statement is fundamental to us understanding the Scriptures. That statement is, is essential for us to develop and have a Christian worldview. In the beginning, God created. Now for those of you who are new with us this morning, we are in the series called One Story. And what we've been doing throughout this series is we've been walking through the one story of the Bible. We've been looking at this story of Scripture. We've said that the Bible is is while it's made up of 66 different books, while it's written by 40 plus different authors, over 1500 year time span, the Bible tells one complete story. In the last couple of weeks, we've looked at a big 30,000 foot view of the Old Testament, and then of the New Testament. And we discovered that the Old Testament is promises made, and the New Testament shows us promises kept. All the promises of the Old Testament are promises that were kept in the New Testament. And today we're going to start looking at the meta-narrative of Scripture. Some of you are going, okay, what does that mean? What is the meta-narrative of Scripture? It's really just the overarching storyline of the Bible. If we want to understand the Bible as a whole, we need to understand the overarching storyline. And the reason we're doing this is because we typically teach through books of the Bible. And so my thought was, in order for us to understand those individual books, we need to understand the whole story. It's like opening a book and just jumping into the middle chapter. You're like, okay, I don't know what happened before. I'm not sure what happened after, but I don't get this book. So in order for us to understand the Word of God, we are discovering this one story of Scripture. 
And the overarching theme, the overarching meta-narrative, the overarching storyline, plotline of the Bible is this. Creation, fall, promise, redemption, mission, and new creation. So over the next several weeks, we're going to unpack that. We're going to discover what that actually teaches us about the Bible. And in the story of creation, actually, before we get into it, I need to remind you guys two things. One, our women's ministry. Tomorrow night starts a new study on this storyline. So if you're wanting to go deeper in this, if you're wanting to understand the storyline a little bit better, we've got two opportunities for you. One starts tomorrow night uh, with our women's ministry. And so if you're a, women, if you're a woman, show up tomorrow night. Uh, what time is it? 6.30. Tomorrow night at the admin house. They're going to begin a, a study on the meta narrative, on this overarching story. And then next Sunday, beginning at 9 a.m. in the admin house, right across our parking lot, we're going to start a study. I think it's six, eight weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, eight weeks, eight weeks on finding Jesus in the Old Testament. How does the Old Testament tie to the New Testament? So those are two incredible opportunities for you to take what we discuss on Sunday morning and go deeper into it. So it'll start at 9 o'clock next Sunday morning, February 5th. So don't miss out on those two opportunities just to go deeper and to continue to grow in your understanding of the Bible. And so as we, as we dive into the, sto- the story of creation this morning, what we're doing is we're going to be introduced into the main characters of the Bible. We're going to be introduced into, into to who these main characters are. We're going to discover God's purpose for humanity. And we're going to set the course for understanding the Bible's unfolding story. The opening scene of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. This opening scene introduces us to the God who is the creator of all things. The God who made it all. Who created it all. But here's what we learn. We learn that God is not an impersonal God. We learn and we're going to discover that God is a personal being with majestic power who simply speaks and the universe falls into creation. The universe comes into existence. In this creation story, God reveals himself as a triunity. What does that mean? That means Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all present at creation. At the very beginning, all three are present. This is where we get our doctrine we call the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Let's look at Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the earth. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So right here, right at the very beginning, Genesis 1.1, we see God the Father and God the, God the Spirit present at creation. And I know some of you are going, well, Eric, you said God the Son was there. We don't see that here. Flip over to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 mirrors the creation story. And in John chapter 1, here's what John says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So what we see in John 1, in Genesis 1, 
we see God the Father, God the Spirit, and now the Word, which is a reference to Jesus Christ, God the Son, all present at creation. Paul echoes this in Colossians 1, where Paul says this, He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. So from the very beginning of creation, we see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit present and active in creating you and I and creating the world that we live in. Now, nobody really told me this, but somehow in my mind, when I first became a believer, I had this thought. And I don't know why I believed it, I don't know who shared it with, but it was an incredibly faulty thought and it was wrong, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. I thought, and maybe some of you are here, some of you are there, so this is why I'm going to share it with you. I had this thought, this idea, that God the Father, you know, the, the, the rule, overbearing Father, He was the main character of the Old Testament. And then God the Son, the one full of grace, full of compassion, full of mercy, he was the main character of the Gospels. And then God the Spirit, the one that would lead us, guide us, empower us, was the, was the main character of Acts as well as the rest of the New Testament. And maybe you've had that thought. But the reality is that is an, in, an inaccurate thought of who God is. That doesn't explain who God is. It is a faulty thought. It is, it is not who God is. In fact, God says in, in Genesis 1, John 1, and Colossians 1, that all of us, all, all of us, were created by this eternal triune creator who is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And He is the maker of all things. Now, I have to admit that this whole idea of a Trinitarian God is confusing. Anybody got it figured out? Okay, me neither. We don't have it figured out. It's, and we can't wrap our heads around it. And, but here's what I want you to know. I don't want you to be bothered by the fact that you don't understand the Trinity. I don't want you to be bothered by the fact that you don't understand that God is three in one. That God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but He's not three gods, He's one God. I don't want you to be bothered by that. We say, well, Eric, I can't wrap my head around that. Listen, there's a lot of things you can't wrap your head around, but it doesn't bother you. Like when we walk into this building, we flip on the lights, I don't understand electricity. It does not bother me one bit. I just know I can flip the switch and lights come on. Listen, most of you don't understand the smartphone in your pocket. But that does not prevent you from spending hours on social media. Liking every picture, watching every reel. Doesn't bother you one bit. But here's the reality. And here's what, this is a principle that I see throughout, throughout my own life that's impacted me. And I, I see it throughout scripture. That a God that is small enough for us to understand is not a God big enough for us to worship. A God small enough that I can understand, that I can wrap my head around Him, is not big enough and deserving enough of my worship. 
And the reality is, church, we serve a God that is big enough and large enough to be worshipped. We serve a God who brought us into existence, who brought all of creation into existence, who out of nothing brought everything. Think about the complexities of the ecosystems that we live in. The light and the darkness, the land, the sea, the sky, the stars, the moon, the variety of plants, the variety of animals and other organisms, the weather and the climate, all working together to sustain life. When you start to think about that, it's mind-blowing, isn't it? That's the God that we serve. A God that is big enough to create all of that simply by speaking it into existence. Simply by saying, let there be light. And guess what? There was light. Let there be land. There was land. Simply speaking the word, God designed and created all of it. God is the source of all existence. God is the, he is sovereign over all that he's made. But before we continue, I think we need to, to pause for just a minute. Before we continue this story. And, and discuss the relationship between faith and science. You see, I, some people, and perhaps maybe even some of you think that, that faith and science are incompatible. That Genesis tells one account of how we got here, and science shows us another account of how we got here. And sometimes we can look at faith and science, we're like, I, I don't see how they connect. They seem incompatible, but the reality is that faith and science don't have to be pitted against each other. Good theology and good science are friends, not foes. And we need to understand that. Good theology which leads to our faith, and good science are not foes. They're not against each other. They work hand in hand with one another. They are friends, not foes. See, Genesis clearly affirms that God is the creator of all. There's no doubt. Genesis 1.1, chapters 1, chapter 2, tells us, shows us in in. in in corroboration with John 1, Colossians 1, and other passages, that God is the creator of all things. But here's what Genesis is not interested in telling us. It's not interested in telling us exactly how God created. It doesn't even tell us the precise length of time God took to create. Nor does it tell us the means by which He chose to achieve creation, other than the fact that, that God spoke the words and all things came into existence. Now I know what some of you are thinking. Wait a second, Eric. The Bible says six days. And it does. It says that God created in six days. But here's what you need to understand. That Hebrew word, where we get the, our English word day, is a word called yom. And that word can refer to a 24-hour period, but it can also refer to periods of time much longer than 24 hours. It can refer to seasons. It can refer to ages. It can refer to time. And we translate it day. Now, I'm not saying that you have to, to believe one way or the other. Here's what I am saying. I'm saying some Christians firmly believe that God created everything in six 24-hour periods, and then he rested. Other believers, other followers of Jesus, other Christians, conclude that that word day 
can refer to a much longer period of time. And here's the amazing thing about Genesis. Genesis leaves ample room for both interpretations. You don't have to choose. I don't have to choose. Genesis allows us to believe that the earth that we live in is six to 10,000 years old or possibly even billions of years old. It doesn't matter. Genesis isn't concerned with sharing that. What Genesis is concerned with is showing us that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the creator of it all. That's the concern of Genesis. And so we can, we can debate it, we can have fun with it, we can talk about it, we can discuss it, but we should never argue about it. We should never get so worked up about it that we, that we break fellowship with someone because they don't believe God created it in a time frame that we believe God created it. That's ridiculous. If we believe that God is the creator of all, we can have fellowship with one another and say, good, that's great. And move on. Because that is the emphasis of Genesis, that God is the one who created it all. Then we get to the crowning jewel of God's creation. We get to the pinnacle of all that God created. And it says on the very last day, God created humanity. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. But what's amazing about what it says about God creating us, it says that God created us in His image. Listen to what Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26 says. Then God said, again, He spoke the words, and it happened. How it happened? That's your interpretation of the word yom. It's up to you. But here it says, Then God said, Let us, Father, Son, and Spirit, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is of the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit and you shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth. And to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was what? Very good. There was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. You see, church, being image bearers, Bearing the image of God is what sets humanity apart from all of creation. The fact that we are the image bearers of God is incredibly significant when we look at the story of Scripture. And being image bearers means at least three things, if not tons more, but there's three that I want to point out this morning. Being an image bearer means that you and I are intended to have a unique relationship with God. That we were created, we were designed to have a unique fellowship with God, a personal, intimate relationship with God. But not only that, being image bearers also means that you and I are created for unique relationship with one another. 
That we are designed, created for community. See, God creates us out of community, Father, Son, and Spirit, and He creates us for community, both with Him and with each other. But there's a third aspect, and it is this, that being image bearers of God means that we are called to reflect God's love and God's rule to all of His creation. That's what it means for us to be image bearers. That we have a a unique relationship and personal, intimate fellowship with God. That we're created for one another in community, in relationship, in fellowship with one another. And that that we are created to bear God's image as we have dominion over His creation. And the reality is that we, in this relationship, that's what we were designed for. In the ancient world, I found this amazing. In the ancient world, oftentimes what kings would do is they would set up an image of himself. You see this in Daniel, right? You've seen Nebuchadnezzar setting up an image and saying, everybody, hey, fall down and bow down to this image. The image was more than likely an image of the king. Because in ancient times, what they would often do is they would, a king would create an image of himself, and it was a reminder to the people who was in charge. It was a reminder to the people who the king was. It was a reminder that this image that was in the, in the cities or in the land uh, was a reminder that the king was the ruler of the people. Well, according to Genesis 1, church, you and I are the image. We are the image, and our lives are intended to draw people, to point people, to reflect the king of kings. That's what it means for you and I to be image bearers. Then we get to Genesis chapter 2. Now Genesis chapter 2 is unique. Where Genesis chapter 1 takes all six, seven days of creation and gives this overview. Genesis chapter 2 zooms in on the one day of creation. It zooms in on the sixth day, the day that God created mankind. And in the midst of God's good creation, we see that God had made a person, a man named Adam. Adam was perfect. He was without sin. He was in the perfect place, the Garden of Eden. He was in a perfect relationship with God. Everything was in perfection, just the way God intended it, just the way God designed it. But God looks at it and says, something's missing. Listen to what God says. Listen to what God's Word says in Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. What, how he came up with platypus, I have no idea. But apparently he did. And the man gave names to all the livestock, And to all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But listen to this. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, God took out one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now let's stop right there. See, we see in this story God creating men and women. 
And God creates a wife for Adam. A helper. Someone fit to be his helper. To come alongside him. To walk along with him. And when Adam wakes up from this deep sleep, he has no words to express the awe that he is feeling. He has no words to say except for, whoa, man. Listen to what he says. Then the man said, this, this is a poem, a love poem, if you will, the first love song ever written right here in Genesis uh, 2, 23. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So Adam is given this helpmate and she is completely and totally compatible with him. She was created and designed for him. She, became, she was a part of him. And God said, I'm going to form a woman out of him. In other words, what this shows is that at her core, Eve was different from Adam, but equally an image bearer alongside of Adam. Men were created and women were created different, but equal. And that's what we see all the way back in Genesis 1. That yes, we are all different, but yet we are created all as image bearers of the divine image. See, the most important aspect of our identity, of who we are, is the fact that you are an image bearer of God. We need to understand that. If you can't understand that, this whole story of Scripture will not make sense. Your life will not make sense. When we lose that identity as an image bearer, we lose everything. But not only does Scripture show us that you and I are image bearers of God, it also affirms that God created us male and female. Men and women. God created them. See, this passage in Genesis chapter 2 shows us and affirms to us and tells us that gender and sexuality and marriage were all a part of God's good design. It's the way God created us. It's the way He designed us. He designed this good creation. He created us for intimacy. That's how God created you and I. Men and women fit together in a way that bonds us at the deepest level of our human experience. That's how God created us. Here, but sometimes the church teaches a confusing message about sexuality and, and intimacy. See, oftentimes in the church, we focus on what God is against. We focus on what God is, is, prohibits, as opposed to what God's ultimate desire is. So, so oftentimes, students, young people, get this idea that sex is dirty, that sex is nasty, that sex is wrong, and then we say, hey, it's wrong, it's nasty, it's dirty, save it for the one you love, save it for marriage. <laughs> That's a confusing message, isn't it? No, sex is beautiful. It is designed and created by God as a gift to us, just within the context of marriage. That's how God created and designed sex to be. And so, instead, you know, instead of preparing our children for marriage, 
If we're not careful, we can scare our children about marriage by not giving them a clear picture of how God designed marriage and sex within that covenant bond. You see, in God's design, marriage and sex is a gift. He created us male and female. He designed us to bond at the deepest levels where two become one. And then he gave us the gift of intimacy and the gift of sex all within the covenant of marriage. And anything outside of that covenant is outside of God's good design. See, the foundation of marriage is found right here in the, in the creation narrative. And it's stated in this way. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What a beautiful picture of marriage, isn't it? That they were bonded together, that they were naked and unashamed. That's God's design for marriage. That's God's design for sexuality. And here's the truth, church. Anytime we go against God's design, anytime we add to it, take away from it, try to make it better, things don't get better, they get worse. God's design for marriage serves as the foundation for the family. And therefore, being the foundation for the family, it extends to become the foundation of a society. In other words, as marriage goes in a culture, so goes the culture. If marriage is the foundation of society, as our marriages go, so goes our society. And you see that play out all the time, don't you? Many of the problems that we face in our culture and our world are the result of us getting family wrong, getting marriage messed up, getting marriage out of order, getting marriage in the wrong design that God had created it to be. Because anytime we change God's design for gender, for sex, for marriage, it doesn't make life better, it makes life worse. And here's the problem. Our culture has perverted God's design. Our culture has corrupted God's good design. It started with the perversion of sex, right? We, we have made pornography and homosexuality just commonplace. We have, we have made sleeping together and living together the norm. And we wonder why we struggle to teach our children about God's design for sex. It's because our culture is bombarding us by corrupting God's good design. But it didn't stop with just sex. Our culture has also taken over marriage, hasn't it? Everything from homosexual marriage to open marriages to starter marriage. You ever heard of starter marriages? Like, this is where you just like, you know what, I'm going to marry this person just because I know I'm going to get divorced, so I'm going to marry them anyway. Quick divorce is, is commonplace. Like, all you need to do is just go to the courthouse. You can get divorced in a snap. You don't have to go to marriage counseling. You don't have to talk to anyone about it. You just go and say, you know what, I'm tired 
of li- I can just say, I'm tired of living with Nicole. Here's half my stuff. We're done. After 25 years. How ridiculous is that? There's no way she wants to invest in somebody else another 25 years. She'd kill me before I'd, she'd let me do that. She doesn't have me trained, but I am broke in. <laughs> just a little bit, at least. But that's what happened, right? We, we've, we've corrupted and broken down God's good design. And now what's being attacked? Gender. Started with sex, then moved to marriage, and now, in today's culture, it is gender that is under attack. God's design for gender is under attack. God created two genders. That's it. He gave them two pronouns. He and she. Him and her. That's it. That's the way God designed it. That is God's good design. Gender fluidity, gender neutrality, all this transition, all of these things are full-on attacks of God's good design that we see back here in Genesis 1 and 2. And here's the reality, church. If we reject God's good design for gender, sexuality, and marriage, it is impossible for us to fulfill our God-given responsibility and purpose for being image bearers. We can't do it. Now, I also need you to know, there is a massive difference between loving people and affirming sin. All right? There is a massive difference between loving people and affirming sin sin. We are to love all people, even those that have broken God's good design for marriage, sex, and gender. We are to love all people, but we are not to affirm any sin. And here's a spoiler alert, just between us. All sin is an attack on God's good design. All sin You know what that means? Not just sexual sin. Not just the sins that I haven't committed. All sin, including mine and including yours, is an attack on God's good design. What was God's good design? Perfect man in a perfect place, in a perfect relationship with God, in a perfect marriage with his wife. That was God's good design. And all of our sin breaks that good design that God has. And the truth of the matter is, church, none of us are without sin. None of us are without sin. But just because we're, with, we're not without sin doesn't mean we should celebrate it. And I don't care which one it is. I don't care what sin you're struggling with. We shouldn't celebrate it. It's breaking God's good design. All sin is. But listen... If we as Christ followers reject individuals regardless of their sin, whether it's, a, whether it's a sexual sin or whether it's not a sexual sin, if we reject individuals who are breaking God's good design, guess what? We no longer have the ability to reflect the image of God to them. And so we have to be very careful 
And I think especially when it comes to sexual sin, the church has a difficult time. Especially when it comes to to same-sex attraction, the church has a really difficult time. But we still have to love people that are breaking God's good design. Just like I expect you to love me because I break God's good design all the time because I'm still a sinner. I still fall short. And guess what? So do you. And anytime we break God's good design, we're sinning against him. And our role, our calling, our purpose is to reflect the image of God. Now, I love how God describes his, his good design. Getting back to the text. I love how God says this. He says that the man and the wife were naked and not ashamed. Then he says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. This is, this is incredible. What he's, in other words, what God is saying to us, to men and women, in the covenant of marriage, he's saying to us, enjoy deep, real, intimate relationships. Have lots of sex and rule the world. Who said Christianity was boring, right? I'm not saying that this is what God says. If you don't like it, take it up with him. That's what he said. Be fruitful. Multiply. All within the covenant of marriage. You see, the call of marriage by God's design is to populate the earth with image bearers. It's to populate this world with image bearers, with people who will have fellowship with God. As parents, that's our primary objective, is to teach our children to love God, to bear His image. And so we are to populate the earth with people that live in fellowship with God, who reflect His love and who reflect His rule in their lives. That is God's good design. That is the way God intended marriage to be. And why did He do that? Because ultimately... Our marriage is to reflect an even greater relationship. As we'll see in a few weeks from now, as we get to the New Testament and and God's meta-narrative, that our marriages are designed, according to Ephesians and other passages, to reflect the, the relationship that Jesus Christ has with His church. And so ultimately, this picture of marriage that is established in Genesis 1 and 2 is a picture that is pointing us to something even greater. It's pointing us to this relationship that God has with his church, with you and I. Now, throughout this story in in Genesis, we see a ton of doctrine and a ton of things that this teaches us. Let, Let me just cover a few of those things. Just think about all this creation story has taught us this morning. That God is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That everything that God created was good. Everything he created was good. Even those mosquitoes before the fall were good. They had a purpose. Roaches before the fall were probably our pets. Who knows? Sarah, they will, in, in heaven they'll sleep on your pillow. I think it's in the Bible somewhere. <laughs> just kidding. I'm just kidding. That's a joke. But, but So we learned that everything God created is good. We, cre- we learned that God created us from community. 
And he created us for community. We've learned that faith and science are friends, not foes. We've learned that God created us to be image bearers. To reflect his rule and his love and his reign into all creation. We've learned that God perfectly designed sexuality, gender, and marriage for his purposes, for his plan. But next week, we're going to discover something we all know. Is that God's good design, God's good world that he created, and our role in this good world goes terribly wrong, doesn't it? We all know this. We know that through the tragic and rebellious choice of Adam and Eve, everything goes wrong. Everything falls apart. But before we go today, I want us to learn why. Because I don't know if you've ever gotten to that part of the fall in Genesis 3, you go, why did, why did something that Adam and Eve do thousands and thousands of years ago, why does that affect us still? You ever wondered that? Well, Genesis 2 tells us. And so before we get to Genesis 3, I want us to see why the sin of Adam and Eve impacts you and I today. See, the Bible teaches us that every single one of us are created in Adam. That's, how, that's our natural birth. We are, we are born into Adam. In other words, Adam isn't just the first human being created. Adam is the first representative of all humanity. That Adam represents humanity, and, and what Adam does impacts each and every one of us as as god as as humanity's representative what that means is that adam was the first that was commanded to obey god and as a result adam is to be an example and to show us how we too are to obey god listen to what god says in genesis i told you this is where it comes from genesis 2 beginning in verse 16 Adam's role as our representative says this, And the Lord God commanded the man, Adam, saying, You are surely, you, should, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. <coughs> Excuse me. For in that day you eat it, you shall surely die. So see here, right now in this passage, we see Adam serving as our representative. That's why his sin in the garden in Genesis 3 that we'll talk about next week impacts each and every one of us today. Because without grasping Adam's representative role, both for the good and for the bad, the whole story of the Bible doesn't make a lot of sense. It leaves us question, why does somebody's choice thousands of years ago impact me? That's why. Because as the Bible story continues, it's going to contrast Adam with Jesus. And it's going to show Adam, who is called the first Adam, and Jesus, who is called the last Adam. And out of these two most prominent people in Scripture, Adam and Jesus, we learn... That the entire story of Scripture is structured around these two men. And we see and we discover that, that with Christ and with Adam, we have two options. We are, we are, all, every single one of us are born in Adam by our natural birth. But every single one of us can be born in Christ through our spiritual birth. 
I want to I want to close out our time this morning with uh, with a passage in Romans because it explains this in in pretty good detail about how Adam impacts each and every one of us. This is verse twelve. Therefore, this is Romans five. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, who's that one man? Adam. And death came through sin. That's what God said. The moment you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Skip down to verse uh, 18. It says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that's Adam's sin. Get this. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Who's that talking about? Jesus. Verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners. But get this. But by the one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. See, the choice each and every one of us have is are we going to live in Adam or in Christ? And the way we enter our lives in Christ is we place our faith and our trust in Jesus. We surrender our lives to him and we live our lives in him. And that's the choice each and every one of us make. Every single one of us are born sinners. Paul said in Romans 3, all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. Because a lot of times we read Genesis 3 would say, well, if it were me instead of Adam, I wouldn't have eaten the fruit. <laughs> yeah, you would. You absolutely would. And I would have, all of us would have. And we're going to talk more about that next week. But what I want to leave you with this week is the fact that that's how sin enters into each and every one of us. But how each and every one of us are made right with God, how we are justified before God, how we are made righteous is through Christ and Christ alone. Heavenly Father, we are so amazed and in awe of your story of creation. And all that this story teaches us about who we are and our role and our purpose in this world. And Father, you have made us and created us to be image bearers. To reflect your rule and your reign and your love to all of creation around us, to our neighbors to our friends, to people where we live, work, and play. That is our role, and you've given it to us all the way back in Genesis 1. So, Father, I pray that for those of us who are Christ's followers, that those of us who are in Christ, that, that we would live this week bearing your image. That we would bear the image of God. That we would reflect your rule in our lives. Your reign in our lives. Your sovereignty over our lives. And your love to others, that we would reflect that this week. And Father, for those of us who may have never placed their faith in Christ, Lord, I pray that today they would see that, that being in Adam is where our sin came from, and that all of us are sinners. And the only way to be made righteous, the only way to be made right with you, the only way to have justification before you is to surrender our lives to Christ, to place our faith and our trust and our salvation in Jesus alone, not in our own works, not in anything that we can do, but in Jesus alone. 
Father, we have that choice. We can be in Adam and remain in our sin, or we can be in Christ and receive the forgiveness of our sin through the death and burial of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray that as we close out this time of worship, that we would honor the one that created us all, the God who is big enough to be worshipped. Even if there's times we don't understand you, and we don't understand how all of this works in our lives, Lord, we know that you are big enough and massive enough and incredible enough to be worshipped and glorified. And we want to do that now as we worship you in Jesus' name. Now, this morning, before we go into worship, if you're here this morning and you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you're wanting to, my encouragement is to talk to the person next to you. You're at tables, talk to somebody at your table and say, you know what, I want to follow Jesus. I don't want to be an Adam anymore. I want to be in Christ. I want to be justified before God. I want to be made right with God. And I encourage you as we close this worship song, just... Spend a few, just talk to the person at your, at your table and tell them, I want to know what it means to follow Jesus. And if they can't help you, somebody at your table can. Let's worship him. Let's worship this God who is big enough to create it all. And let's lift our voices and worship him. To learn more about freedom, join us on our website at freedombiblechurch.net.